Hey everyone, I'm Sujin Park, and welcome to Open Account. Together with the folks at Umpqua Bank, we have created this podcast to talk about money. And one thing that's always fascinating to us is not just having conversations about what people do with their money, but how they make it, especially when it's a business or a profession that isn't familiar to us, like being a farmer. According to statistics, 40% of the world's population works in agriculture. Compare that to 2% in the U.S., which is kind of a stunning statistic when you consider that almost half of all the land in the U.S. is devoted to agricultural use. So, we got curious, especially because farming is such a mythic, almost noble story of America, the original American dream, the American farmer. And we became even more curious about the economics, the money of farming, after we met Jugpal Badesha. Jugpal is 32, and when I met him in the studio, you know, he's got his gold-plated baseball cap, aviator shades, and without a doubt, one of the most memorable laughs, which you'll be hearing a lot of. Let's just say, he's not what I imagined. Jugpal is a farmer from California's Central Valley. And even if you don't recognize him or his farms by name, you've likely tasted his grapes, raisins, and almonds, all of which show up in kitchens, wineries, and tables around the country and the world. The story of his farm reads like a hero's journey. Immigrants arriving by boat who worked hard and literally built an empire from pennies, who put blood, sweat, and tears into a backbone of American economy, agriculture. So what does it take to make a life as a farmer today? And how does someone like Jugpal decide to stay in farming? Is it for the money or something greater? For Jag, it's a family legacy running back hundreds of years. And it's his turn to move his family business into the future. First of all, welcome, Jag. I know that uh, that you've gone out of your way to make time for us. So Absolutely. thank you so much. All right, tell everybody in your own words um, who you are and what you do. And my name is Jag Vadesha, and I'm a farmer. What are people's general reactions outside of the farming community when you say you're a farmer? Oh, God, it varies. Like, uh, when, when I meet people in the city, I tell them I'm a farmer. Half the people think you're a hipster farmer, like you just have a chicken and you have like a couple, a couple like plants that you're growing in your backyard and you decided to make a career out of it. Other people think you grow marijuana, <laughs> and I was like, never. And so uh, a few people, like when I tell them I actually I grow grapes and I grow almonds, and they're they're actually shocked. They're like, you really? That's what you decided to do? Like you could done anything? I'm like, well, it's. It's the thing to do. <laughs> and this is the first time in the show that we've had to work around someone's harvesting schedule. Which <laughs> It's actually so middle, middle of the harvest. Uh, two days ago was a cutoff to have all of our grapes picked. And then sure enough, the next day it rained, <laughs> just like it does every other year. And so it was, uh, it, was, it was a little stressful to get here. Okay, give me sort of the layman sort of like picture when you say, yeah, I'm in the middle of harvesting. Like, what does that mean? In the middle of harvesting, it's 24-hour operations. Sometimes uh, we're running at night and we're like 16-hour, 18-hour days. Sometimes we sleep in our trucks and then uh, we just switch off and uh, like go to McDonald's, get some coffee, get back out there. And then uh, we're running crews of... Uh, 
of, of all these uh, migrant farm workers as well as running harvesting machines on the vineyards that, are, that can take it. As we have some vineyards that are 60, 80 years old. And you're racing against a clock? What Absolute, is that What is that clock? So the clock is uh, with almonds, you have four different varietals, and they all harvest at different times. They mature, so it's always up to like the weather. You never know when it's going to mature, but when it's mature, you have, everything has to be done at once. Then with the grapes, you have to squeeze the grapes, but you don't want to wait so long that the grapes start shriveling on their own on the vine and you want them nice and plump and then you put them down to dry for raisins or you pick them for uh, wine and uh, juicers or table grapes. It's it, This is like two or three months of just absolute organized chaos. Is it like just crazy stress or after a while you get a rhythm? I mean, how do, how do you oh, even... Oh, you can't let the stress get to you. That's uh, I'm a Punjabi Indian American and uh, we were born, a, we were raised with Sikhism and one of the, the main tenets is and it means that you should always be ever, ever optimistic, even in the worst times. And so you can never lose your cool. You have to, you have to find your inner peace because that's the only way you're going to develop solutions. If you're stressed out about something, you're just going to ruminate on the same problem and never find a solution. So you're in the middle of harvesting. How's it looking so far this year? Um, we, I think, uh, most uh, it's one of the lowest weights we've ever had on uh, on the grapes. Uh, it's been six, seven years since we had a good price on uh, on raisins. So that all of that kind of it just sort of adjusts itself. It balances out. Oh. Well, if <laughs> we don't know yet, uh, if uh, if it rains and then we're gonna have and the, there's no more crop left, then it didn't work out, did it? And so uh, we have contingency plans with crop insurance, and so even on the worst years, not that bad. And a good year is a really good year. And so when you have a good year, that's when you take a couple breaks off and you, and you never know what it's going to be next year or the year after. You get one paycheck a year and you have to figure out what, what the next three to five years we're going to do with that paycheck. It just sounds like such a, such a different way to organize your life around finances. You either get paycheck to paycheck or you get paid on a salary or you get you know, freelance work. But when you just said that you get one paycheck and you have to figure that out, how do you do that? In order to be a farmer these days, you have to be good at everything. You have to be an engineer. You have to be a craftsman. You have to be a welder. You have to be a mechanic. You have to be a farmer. You have to be a financier. You have to know exactly how to get the most out of a, a bank to cover all the, to increase your credit lines, to, to expand the business or wherever you're going to go, or even prepare for a bad year. And, uh, just something that you just learn as you go and yeah. like it's it's just second nature to us yeah um okay so give me sort of an overview of your farming business i don't yeah, even just all call it my dad's land yeah then before that it was uh, my grandfather i mean like and in india we still farm and that was my grandfather's land it was my great-grandfather's land it's the family land and so everybody works in the business my mom works my dad works it's a family run operation a hundred percent yeah so what is the actual physical presence of that land and what do you grow on that land? Like how, how big is that land? Like are we... Oh, so we're, we're spread out uh, quite a bit. It's over a thousand, but uh, I, I don't know the A exact. thousand... Acres. Acres. Yeah. Over a thousand uh, acres. I, I, that we, that's personally ours. And then we also pick up uh, leases where we can. And uh, it's, there's a lot of people that don't want to farm. Because they just—it's a lot of work. Anyone who's done it their entire lives, 
uh, a lot of kids my age, they're like, well, farmland's worth so much. Why don't we just sell it all and cash out? And the old people, the grandfathers, they know that once they get one paycheck, they're going to blow it on a on a Ferrari and then, uh, you know, a lavish lifestyle for four years. And then, then what, what are they going to have left? This is not what he spent his entire life building up so his grandkids could have a good life. So they give us these leases and they, so they'll set up an, a, an estate plan and they'll sign this like for 70 years 50 year leases and they know that will a portion of every year's crop will go to take care of that family forever and then if they do decide to sell we would like to have first option to buy where is this land uh, madera california kerman california crows california selma california delray california fowler sanger riverbend Imagine a territory between like 80 miles latitude and 60 miles uh, longitude with about a bunch of red dots that, that's that's all small farms. And we try to make sure that's like an organized web where we can move around equipment to save a cost. So it's, a tractor is a very expensive uh, investment. So if we can have three or four farms that are right close to each other or one big chunk of land, it would be, it's it's far easier to farm that way. And so all of us are completely on the on the move 100% of the time, moving around, like taking care of each farm. When you refer to yourself as a small farmer yes. versus any other, can you kind of so give me an idea of what that means? A small farmer is usually a small family farm, and it's ran by the family. And we have large corporate farms, which are ran like a business like Microsoft or any other large corporate business you have different departments, you have various people who are specialized tasks handling every aspect of farming where we try to be one person that tries to do it all. Yeah. If you look at the Midwest, people have huge swaths of land. I think 50,000 acres makes you actually like a, a small farmer out there, whereas it would make you a huge player in the in the Central Valley. And land out there is about $600 an acre, and they grow corn, wheat, soy, the staple grains. And uh, out here, we're, we have, we're blessed with very fertile land and uh, an amazing weather, so we can grow a large variety of anything. Mm-hmm. And out there, it's, it's a lot more humid, and so you, can, you can't grow squashes and like stuff that would get normally just rot on a commercial scale, where you can do that here. So you said in the Midwest it's about six hundred dollars an acre. So what is that? How how much of an acre on average is it in the Central Valley? Um, I think the lowest uh, for any any good piece of land with good water is about twenty five to twenty eight thousand dollars an acre. Yeah. Yeah. Farming to me, you know, I have this like romantic picture of it, but it how that. you're it is that it is that there's, there's something beautiful about coming home after a really hot day. You never get it working at an office job. I, I've done a lot of consulting gigs with the agrobotic companies in the first startups, and that's the future of it is precision farming. The way that's going is consulting rooms, board meetings, and always and I'm like, this conference talks, and I'm like, this is not what I want to do with my life. But once you guys figure it out, sell it to me. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. So for most of us who don't have a real understanding of farming and agriculture and that business, is it a lucrative way to make a living? It can be, and it can be. It's some years, uh, when it's good, 
it's very very good and then you just know that's definitely probably not gonna be good next year so you try to hold on to that that amount and you wait and you try to save it and then when it's a bad year that's the year you want to buy land so that's the only way you can keep expanding when it's a good year and it's a lucrative year you learn to be modest and humble with uh what comes in because you don't know what the future is going to be. Yeah. So when you get that big paycheck, if it's a good year, you know that that has to potentially last a lot longer. It's not like from there you're like, I'm going to go to Bali for two months. I'm going to, you know, buy these four houses. I can't remember the last time I took a vacation. I can't remember the last time anyone in my family took a vacation. It's not something we do. There's not a day that has nothing to do. So when it's it's winter, you go check the irrigation drip lines. You you try to, uh, I mean, there's always something to do on the farm. I want to go back and talk about how this all began, and we alluded to this earlier, but talk to me about this legacy of farming that goes so far beyond so here. I, in my family, we're, we're from India. We've been farming for hundreds of years in India, and it's a legacy that I've always wanted to carry on. My grandfather's 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 grandfather farmed, and when we came to America, we farmed uh, here first, and when my grandfather's brother came here, they were migrant farm workers and until they could start farming on their own and save their pennies. Just something that like I've always wanted to uh, never lose. Yeah. So tell me about when your grandfather and his brother first came to America and how they came, why they came, and how they were able to buy land. My grandfather's uh, brother came here on, in, I want to say, 24. He came, uh, he came on a merchant ship from India, he, from Punjab. He traveled to Calcutta, which went to Hong Kong, which went to San Francisco, and he never got back on the ship. And, was he uh, supposed to get back on the ship? Yeah, I think he was supposed to go <laughs> back on the ship. And, uh, and he found out that there's other Indians here living in the Central Valley that are also, and there's only a community of like 20 or 40 of them they started picking onions and doing uh, migrant farm labor work. And then, in some ways, once World War II happened, it was almost a turning point in your guys' family trajectory. So talk about that. So after, uh, when World War II happened, my grandfather saw an opportunity to gain citizenship where there was no other opportunity before that. And they said, simply, you just sign up, grab a rifle, and uh, you, they will give you citizen, we'll give you citizenship if you fight for America. And so he signed up in 43, and he joined the U.S. Army, and he he went to Japan, and he got shot in the hip, and he he received a purple uh, purple heart for for his efforts. And when he came back in 44, he came back with citizenship. It was it was it was the best thing to happen for our family. Because with that citizenship, he was he was able to uh, to sponsor his brother to come here. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they put they pulled their money together. On, on this side and in India to get my grandfather and his uh, three eldest sons to come to America. So um, kind of break down for me how your family goes from that point of your great uncle has citizenship now because he has served time in the U.S. military to then going on to becoming one of the largest Indian-owned farms in this country. Once they they were here, they... My grandfather's uh, brother was very, very well versed in English. He was able to talk to banks, get the loans. They weren't aware of every single programs out there, like crop insurance or such. 
but uh, they knew that they could farm and they just prayed to God that the crop would be good and then they had someone to sell it to. And so they were able to, with each crop and each successful crop, be able to purchase more land and really grow that farm Absolutely. into something massive. And this was during the, what what um, what years were these? Between the 50s, 60s, and 70s were the times that they grew that farm to that, that stage. Okay, so that was up until the 70s. And then you said your father... Your father went to India. What year was it that your father left the farm to go to India and find a wife? Um, I don't know exactly what year he left, but I knew it took him three years to, to go find my mother, and he went out to find the smartest woman he could. And my mother is absolutely brilliant. So w- when she married my father, she dropped out of med school and thought that she was going to marry so high up that she'd never have to work again, and she could become a you know just a housewife. And uh, then when she comes here, they lose everything. When my father came here, no one had filed for crop insurance. There was three years of bad crops in a row, and there was a balloon payment that was owed to the banks over the 700 acres in the, in the amount of $680,000. And uh, my dad just thought, if I could, he borrowed money from everyone he could, and uh, of that $680,000, he was $2,500 short, and uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a very bad loss. Obviously, you weren't born yet at this time, no. but um, you, I'm sure you've heard stories about that time when you lost, when your family lost everything. What was that time like for your family coming from, on one extreme, you know, having this incredibly successful um, farm to then losing everything? Well, it, had, it was devastating, I'm sure. I, mean, I, I only know what the like what everybody went through after. I didn't ever saw it before, but I heard the stories of how great it was before. And so they're like, well, we can't buy anything. It's not like we can just, okay, we lost it all. Let's go back to the bank and go get a few lands. You had to wait seven years for your credit to clear up. And then uh, in that same that same time, since we had nothing, we have to start building this nest egg. So everyone was working all the time. And it's now my mother bless her heart she's like okay well let's let's get to it and so she worked three jobs my dad was working at a chemical factory drove taxi cab for years and i remember there was nights that he came home like sleeping in the cab for like for a couple hours so just 48 for 48 hours straight because it was the 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 money making period and we they pulled it all together it was times that like my mother didn't eat just so she could feed me and like i I remember those days very vividly, but it's something a lot of immigrants have gone through. It's not, uh, my story is not special. Mm-hmm. It's what you do with that. Uh, you have a goal in mind and you never lose sight of that goal of where you're gonna get to. And uh, the fortitude that they have, it's amazing. Well, it reminds me of the the quote that you gave at the beginning of our conversation about hope, about never oh, losing that. Yeah, you never lose hope. So what did that rebuilding process look like to get you to, I don't know what year would that would be, what year do you think? Oh, we started, I think it was right, right around 1990. There, there was no growth, it was, it was just saving for that nest egg. So everybody works, everybody pulls the money together into an account, and uh, we try to live off very little, and the goal is to raise this down payment to buy that first chunk of land, and then once, once we had enough, we started looking around, and we find the one piece of property that was the cheapest that hadn't been tilled in 30 years, and I think it was about $6,400 an acre. 
and uh, we, me, my mother and father, we chopped that, the whole thing down with machetes, and then we built the biggest bonfire <laughs> as I ever saw as a child. And uh, then we ripped the soil, we tilled it, we did everything on the cheap, as cheap as possible. We took prune cuttings from our neighbor after after he pruned his vines. We took the cuttings. We made clones of his uh, vines. We tied them together in like 28 segments. Like you would have bundles of uh, about 80 or 90 of these little vines, and they put growth hormone on the bottom, and we buried them for two months. So now we just saved each one of those. Would have costed us over six dollars to buy from uh, a nursery. Whereas we just took the scraps from our neighbor and they're free. And then we bought used wire, used stakes of somebody else, ripped out their vineyard, and we built those first 20 acres ourselves. And how old were you at the time when you're clearing this land with your mom and dad? I, I must have been either six, five, six years old. And you have this clear memory? You remember all the details of, uh, of the things you did because you repeated them again and again. You know, you go back to that memory when you repeat another, uh, develop another farm. It wasn't like something that you could just lose. Yeah. And so from there, it was 20 acres, that first plot? And then from 20 acres, we developed a, another farm that was 80 acres. That was uh, four or five years later, we bought 80 acres. Every four or five years, we were able to quadruple the, the size of the farms. And then eventually, we bought a very large chunk of land and then those first 20 acres my dad sold and I, I had to send I had to I'm like dad why would you why would you sell the first 20 acres and he was like Jack it's just it's just money and don't get sentimental about money if we can sell this chunk of land to make a lot more this is the goal don't get sentimental over a piece of land it's a, it's the business it's the lands yeah and how do you think that shaped your personal outlook on finances as, as an adult. When when I when we first started doing uh, well, I I mean even as a child I was always like trying to have a, like I wanted to have a Super Nintendo. And I remember like my tenth uh, it was my tenth birthday and my mom took me to Toys R Us and she's like I'm gonna stand at the register, go uh, go find uh, your toy and just bring bring it out. It's your birthday. You get to have whatever you want. So I found. So the Super NES slip, and uh, it was like a little yellow slip. I took it to her, and she was like, "Jag, I'd love to buy you this toy." And I, but it takes your mother to work 62 hours to buy you this toy, and I love you, and I'll work those 62 hours. But those 62 hours I can't spend with you. And do you want mom to work those 62 hours? Like, no. Then go find something cheaper. <laughs> and so I, I went back out, and I'm like, and I thought about it. I came back with two big jars of sour gummy worms. And she's like, that's all you want? Like, that's all I want. So as soon as I got home, I grabbed a bunch of my dad's sandwich bags and I separated them out by color and I took them to the playground the next day and sold them for a quarter pop. <laughs> You're like, here, <laughs> Mom, take four hours off. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually I bought my Super Nintendo. <laughs> so you left, you were 22 when you left the family business, I didn't. Uh, yeah, or not leave the family. Business. I, I, every every summer, I was I would always come out for the for the harvest. Yeah. So I mean, while I was here doing school, it was never a point in my life I didn't farm. Right. You came to the city at 22 to go to school, with the intention always of being and expanding this farming business and being around it. Or did you also consider could there be another life out there for me outside of farming? 
Oh, I absolutely. I, I I saw. I wanted. I wanted to see where I can go and like how far I, I like where life would take me. And uh, when I when I was a kid, my whole life, I'd, I'd been doing raisins, working whenever it was raining. We're rolling the we're rolling the raisins so they don't get wet. I'm in, I'm drenched in mud. I just remember all these terrible times, and I never wanted to be a farmer. I just saw that as oh my god, this is just so laborious and everything else like that. I, when you're a kid, you don't you don't really appreciate it. Because like you never, there wasn't a huge payout, and my parents always wanted me to do something better, and so I, I left to San Francisco at the age of 22, and I lived out here for eight nine years, and uh, went to school out here, studied international relations. So when you moved to the city, this is the first time that you have lived full time in a big city, mm-hmm. correct? But I knew that I grew up in a small town and. It was of, of like 2,300 people, and now there's like 16,000 people, and I don't know all the faces anymore. And uh, they come to San Francisco, and I just thought, like, wow, this is big city life. Like, you, every day you can run into someone with a new idea, a new perspective. And I just wanted to wanted to know what else is out there. And sure enough, international relations, I, I learned people from all walks of life all over the continent. Like, I didn't see the future in being a professor. When you move, you, you you take in all this different perspectives, and I want to say, I, I mean, you can say everything is life changing, but it, it, it truly was. It opened up my horizons, and I thought like I saw a bigger picture of the world mm-hmm. than I ever did staying at home. And did that bigger picture of the world change your perspective on the family business? Uh, yeah, eventually, uh, it I, I saw like there's there could be. Uh, more opportunities with all these uh, international buyers. Mm-hmm. And like, what do we need to grow to fulfill this demand? There's 2.2 billion mouths to feed in, uh, in China, 1.5 billion mouths to feed in India. And uh, there's only 300 and so Americans. So like, it has to be, you have to grow something for the international market. So um, without romanticizing it, and you clarify it for me, what I see is you come into the city as a 22-year-old young man, you have this history and this legacy of this farming business in, in, in you, and you come and you explore the world like every young person should and does. And then in the end, you come back to the farm. Tell me about that point when you move from the city back to you know, really getting into the farming business and to your family's business on a day-to-day you know, level. Do you know what I mean? Like, what was that transition like? Because you were out here for eight years, and then you went back? While I was in San Francisco, I saw the the rise in the value of nut prices and almonds specifically get to $5 a pound. And I saw this is this is the future. This is not in raisins. After years and years of, of steadily the price going lower and lower and lower, I saw the price per pound of almonds keep going up. And I knew that this is something I could do uh, that our family could do that was much easier mm-hmm. than uh, than raisins. When we needed every hand to do the mm-hmm. to development, uh, there's no way I could just just hang out here a couple of weeks and then go back there for a couple of weeks. It was, it, there would be no point in it. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's like fun times over. Let's go. Let's get down to business. I mean, I could have like very easily went somewhere else. Like, could have took a desk job, got at a startup, and been miserable. <laughs> I wonder, and I don't know if you, you can relate to this, but I wonder if 
it feels different to come back to a family business by choice versus some people who come to a family business out of pure obligation or a sense of duty? Well, you want to make your parents happy no matter what you do. But if, if you can, if, if the family can be successful, it's even better. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, there's like, people think that it was like this great epiphany or anything else. It wasn't like that. It was just like, this is what we're going to do. Cool. Let's do it. Yeah. And like, whenever there's something to do, we all uh, get together and we, uh, we accomplish that task. What do you attribute that kind of unity but it's this kind of singularly minded family unit. Parents are great parents. Yeah. I think they did a good job of raising two, two young boys to be men. Yeah. yeah. And that family honor, duty, and this sort of respect for what they've built is just not even questioned. Oh, I remember my grandfather when I was a kid, like when we had nothing, he's like, everything I ever did in my life was for you. Everything your father ever does in his life will be for your kids and everything you do in your life will be for your grandkids. Mm-hmm. And this is a, this is how we build a family. This is how we're gonna like build this business up or anything in life. Okay, so that's a great place to start to look to the future. What do you see on the near horizon and the distant horizon that that you're sort of working towards or things that you would like to see you know the farm growing in this area or reaching a certain type of goal or what does success look like to you in the next couple of years and then 10 years down the road um i guess it'd be to to be the i just want to be the best at what i do and so i've I've looked at other farms that uh, are very small scale that are only uh, using a, a single acre and they have so much output. And the reason is because they're able to aerate the soils uh, naturally and without using any pesticides and chemicals, you just let it sit. And so all the natural fauna, the the earthworms return. And if you look, go to the fo- forest and you look at that, the soil is dark, rich black. But the only way to achieve that, like those small scales is intensely hand laborious work. So I see the future being uh, precision farming, where like there's a project I, w- I worked on briefly where it's pretty much a Roomba we- uh, weeder. So you have this huge thing that runs on electric batteries that are solar panel charged and it has, you have eight different cameras that let learn what, what every plant is and at, at what stage. And I, I imagine like, never having to like till the soil again where you just have this Roomba that's zapping weeds left and right 24 hours a day solar powered and I, then I see like the future of every like maybe one day I will be able to chill and uh, sit on a beach and farm with an iPad <laughs> but that's uh, that'll be 20 years uh, 30 years from now and that's where I see this business headed is automation do you think farming will always be a part of your future absolutely and when you have kids, will you pass that on? That Absolutely, love? 100% I will. I, I would be, if we talk about success, I, I would be a failure if I didn't <laughs> pass it on. I have this romantic notion of what farming is as I'm sitting in front of a computer slogging away through emails. I want you to just sort of end this with a visual and sensual kind of picture of what it is like to work with the land and to produce something as vital as things we eat, you know, which is not something that most of us have 
contact with. I mean, the closest I come to that is when I go to the grocery store. So I have no connection to it. Living in San Francisco, you, you hear cars and and there's always a noise. Uh, and and eventually, like I I remember living in Hayes Valley, uh, on like the corner apartment of a of a of, of, of a building, and it was always completely noise. And then you go out there, and it's it's nature, and you hear the crickets, and then you get to see the clouds, and you get to see the big skies, and it's just beautiful. To me, it's it's a beautiful thing to work with the land, and and like you get to see every year a crop grow into something. But what it does is it gives you a challenge. There's always something that you can get better at so whenever there's a equipment failure you learn right on the on the hand that this is how you fix it and so you're always expanding your mind in every single way uh to be a i guess a better human being Jugpal's story is almost impossible to summarize in a short conversation. It's full of rich details that span the actual business of farming, as well as a monumental family history, and a personal outlook that is part poet, part industrialist, and in many ways, that of a dreamer. He's also part of the millennial generation, which often gets typecast as kids looking to make quick money for less work. But that isn't him. Farming isn't an easy job, nor is it a guaranteed stable financial future. But for Jagpal, it's the only future he wants. He's willing to put in every ounce of his being to make it work. He sees the beauty and purpose in what he does, the legacy and the responsibility, and the reality that this isn't just a job. It's his destiny. And who wouldn't want to wake up to that every morning? Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and stay tuned for a lot more. And we want to know what you think. You can be part of this conversation by giving us your feedback or telling us your story at made2grow slash open account or on social media. We're at Umqua Bank on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Open Account is created by Umqua Bank and produced in collaboration with Slate Group Studios.